You are listening to Agriculture, a podcast that interviews a range of inspirational people from the farming community with a whole host of interesting tales to tell. In today's episode... The most commonly asked question we had is, why are these little calves in this shed and not with their mothers? And we would have to try and explain that. And we had a way of explaining it. It sometimes satisfied the person that had asked the question, but often it didn't. Those of us at, I'll say, the sharp end with the public were much more aware of what the public thought was acceptable in farming than those that were actually doing the farming. I'm Mary Jane Laurie, and in this episode, I'm joined by David and Wilma Finlay of Rainton Farm in Dumfrieshire. They talk about their transition from traditional dairy farming to the cow with calf dairy system, which they call the ethical dairy. Alongside the dairy, they have also tried a number of diversification projects, which have added value to their dairy products. They talk openly about their challenges and rewards of their work. They are also authors of the book, Our Dairy Story, in which they tell their farming story. David, you're from a farming family. Can you tell me what your family farm was like growing up and what sort of farm it was? Yeah, well, back in the day, this is, we're talking 60 years ago, so it's not uh, just yesterday. It was a, a fairly conventional upland farm down in southwest Scotland. It was, it was mainly grassland um, with 75 dairy cows, um, about 25, 30 sucklers, about 250 breeding ewes mainly blackface, and we'd uh, plough and uh, sow oats, some barley sometimes, turnips, kale. You know, it was a, it was a sort of busy little low-tech uh, community uh, <laughs> on the farm because uh, back in those days, uh, everybody had kids, you know, all the families had kids, and there would be about 22, 3, 4. There was enough for two football teams. On, and we regularly played football down in one of the paddocks. So it was a good life, you know, a lot of uh, uh, outdoor activity. And you didn't initially work on the family farm. You went off to be an agricultural consultant, is that right? Uh, well, I did. <laughs> as soon as you were old enough to carry a lamb, you were out there working. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, went off, uh, did studied uh, agriculture at university and then um, spent 10 years as a, an agricultural consultant, yeah. Wilma, you're not from an agricultural background. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Well, I'm not from an agricultural background, but I am from a rural background and actually both sets of grandparents were in farming. Okay. But that's, that's a long time ago and, you know, a farm was really, by the time I was on the scene... It was really a couple of cows um, and a few hens. So mine was much more an idea of what farming was like when I first met David. I'm from the northeast of Scotland, so I went off to university and studied maths and uh, had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with agriculture. Loved the city life for quite a few years, 10, 15 years. And then I got to the stage where... I was in my mid-30s and I wanted to get back to a kind of rural, more rural way of life. And that was when I met David. But I'd, I'd about 15 years of working in IT, working mainly for big companies and seeing a bit of the world. So it was it was a good time, lots of fun, mm-hmm. lots of mm-hmm. hard work, but never a thought about agriculture. Okay, so totally different lifestyle, really. And David, around that time, you decided to come back to the family farm. How and why did you make that decision? 
Well, there were two um, things happened more or less at the same time as my, firstly, my father was approaching his mid sixties and was um, thinking about uh, stepping back because there hadn't been room for both of us on the farm up until then. Also, my employer was uh, having reorganization um, and they were offering redundancy payments, which were quite attractive. So I thought, okay, um, now's the time to go. And it allowed me to buy uh, into the, the, the farm partnership. And so how did you and Wilma meet? Well, <laughs> this is um, 30 plus years ago. That's before internets and uh, these kind of things, dating uh, online. Uh, so, But it was the pre-forerunner to that, which was a computer dating, where you filled okay. up a, a sheet with um, all your interests and uh, activities. They tried to theoretically match our interests. So then we, we were put in touch with each other and um, just kiss a foot in the phone room up. And Wilma, what's your story? Yeah, I mean, I'd just like to add that very basic. There was no photographs. There was no swipe right, swipe left. <laughs> it was simply, here's a name, make contact with them. Um, so, yeah, it was a very early precursor to what's available now. I wonder if the photos would have helped or hindered the, the process <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so once you met, how did you like coming to live on the farm, Wilma? It was obviously a, a different pace of life to what you were used to, but you you said you were kind of ready for that change? Yes, I was very much ready for it. I was actually looking for looking to move into the country and looking to get away from corporate life. I think you do, or at least I did, reach a stage where you become quite cynical about corporate life. And I just wanted to do something completely different. I also had a couple of dogs. So coming down to the farm every weekend with my two dogs may have upset the uh, the farm a little bit, but I was having a great time. It was like coming on holiday every weekend. It was it was great just to, well, obviously you're, you're beginning to form this relationship but at the same time, it's just such a beautiful part of the country to come to. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you then get involved in the farming business? What were your first steps into being part of the business? David always tells a good story, which is on the third date, he popped the question to me. And the question was, would you like to come and run an ice cream factory? <laughs> um, so he had actually been working on a plan to diversify the farm before he ever came back to the farm. So it was a case of, would you like to see my business plan? I was ready for a move, so I was both intrigued, but also very enthusiastic about making a move as well. You know, with the reality of coming home from an office job, which David's was, to running a farm, you know, it's a very, very big physical change and there's a lot of learning to do. And he just didn't have the capacity to run the farm effectively and also start a diversified business. So I slotted into that slot quite happily. <laughs> so tell us how you started the Cream of Galloway then. What were the initial diversification ideas and the challenges that you faced? Well, we had, we had lots of ideas. And again, I've got to be fair to David. I was really guided by what he was saying because he had a much better idea of what was feasible for him for the farm etc so he quickly ruled out any meat-based products and said it's got to be dairy we looked at milk we looked at uh, yogurt we looked at cheese and we looked at ice cream 
we went on a trip to Cornwall where all this was happening and we decided that, yep, ice cream was the one. It seemed to be the one that suited us best. And we had competition for cheese in the area. There was competition for yogurt. And just to get into the milk business would have been far too onerous for us um, and just not feasible, we thought. So we, we got into ice cream and we took advice from lots of people. Mm-hmm. And initially it worked very, very well. It was a huge learning curve for me too because even though I had all the the kind of background in IT I was producing business plans left right and centre because we were approaching all sorts of agencies to see if we could get funding Mm -hmm. and every funding organisation had a different list of priorities that they would fund so I was having to produce all these business plans and in the meantime David was drawing together plans for how, which building we would convert and how we would convert it. So we were, and I would say still are, a good complement to each other. David's a lot more practical than me. He's a much bigger risk taker than I am. And I'm happily, not exclusively in the background, but I'm happy to do the health and safety. And I think I don't think I really am happy doing the health and safety assessments, <laughs> but you know what I mean. I'll, I will at least do them. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and everything like that, just to make sure uh, the business runs smoothly and legally. And that's how it's been more or less ever since. I think that's important, isn't it? Identifying your, your own strengths within the business and the skills that you've got. And as you were saying about the old building, what physical assets you've got as well before mm-hmm. you even come up with any ideas. Absolutely. And to be honest, we still we're still looking at things like that. Today, you know, we, we and sometimes it's what are we going to do with that old building or alternatively, it's the other way around. We must make a change and we must do that. But where are we going to do it? Mm-hmm. So even though we're well through our 60s, we're still at that stage of, well, what should the next move be? And so once you started the ice cream business, you then also had a, a sort of public side to that as well, where you had the, the sort of visitors coming onto the farm. Can you tell me a bit about that, David and, and Wilma? What was the driver behind inviting people onto the farm? Well, I'll start. I mentioned that we had this trip to Cornwall. And of course, in Cornwall, tourism is huge. And David, on the way home, long drive home, said, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think we can do quite a lot of what they do down there but we're never going to have the public on the farm. Just, no, we're not having the public. Um, And then uh, maybe about six months later, he had a drawing, the architect's drawing, and there was this little room in the building that said shop. And I thought, oh, we've cracked it. (laughs) Over to you, David. Yeah, and and that was was a good decision. (laughs) The uh, undoubtedly in the sort of, in the 90s and early 2000s, having visitors on the farm was really the what kept everything going. It was very, very profitable um, little enterprise. We started uh, with, I think we got five or 6,000 visitors in the first year, but um, oh, wow. as we got our signage up and uh, put, got the leaflets around the visitor attractions in the area, visitor, the accommodation providers, we uh, we got grew the numbers over the next um, well over through those twenty years up to about seventy five thousand a year, um, so it, <laughs> oh going from no way are they coming on the farm to uh, yeah this is a big part of our business and very successful part at that time. So you had the shop, but you also had sort of outdoor activities as well, did you? 
Yeah, we're, well, we're pinched ideas. We'll go along and have a look at uh, uh, playgrounds in the area and, um, and outside the area very much. We've been all over the country uh, looking at uh, playground equipment. And, uh, of course, when you go to a playground, there's, there's lots of kids there and, and uh, you're looked upon a bit askance if you don't have any kids with you. So I used to drag along uh, at least one of my daughters uh, to, uh, to accompany us. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we're thrown out, um, but uh, yeah. So we did a lot of research, and uh, and gradually we built, we built, we designed and built our own playground, and um, and that was again a, a very uh, unique part of the attraction was the people the uh, the novelty of it, but the insurance people didn't. Yeah, I guess that's a, a, another challenge, isn't it? In ensuring that everything is. Yeah, safe and uh, compliant and, and all these things whilst also trying to keep the main farm running there must have been a lot of hurdles to jump that's right and our, our sort of a, a standard of uh, what that'll do uh, wasn't good enough uh, so we did have to have uh, an inspection annually from um, the Royal Society for Prevention of Accidents who came along sent a specialist along to uh, inspect the um, facilities and mm -hmm. uh, sign them off uh, or not and if they didn't, we'd have to modify them to make them acceptable. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and the insurance company, everything, you know, and, and you were, at the end of the day, you were trying to avoid any um, major mishaps because that would be just disastrous and awful. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but you gradually come to that realisation because when you're, you know, when we were young and playing, in the, uh, you know, climbing trees and swinging from ropes and things, the thought of any major accident, really, uh, you didn't even think about that. So, yeah, we came a long way from there to where we had to be. Yeah, absolutely. And after you'd opened the, the, the shop and the visitor attraction and things, you then considered going to organic farming. So how and why did you come to that decision? Uh, the organic side, yeah. Well, you know, this is going back 25 plus years now. And uh, in those, at that time, um, farming really wasn't going through a very good time. And organic was looked upon as being sort of the, the next um, sliced bread, if you like. Because, and there was no sense of division in the industry at that time. I remember going to a big meeting being held up at um, Stirling Marts, and there was hundreds of farmers there uh, looking at the possibility of going organic because the premiums were there, big premiums in the market. It was being heavily promoted uh, at every level in the food industry. And the, the meeting was actually organised by Scottish Enterprise. So it... It was seen as a as a major business development um, for, for Scotland, so that was a that was a driver. There was there was also the or Wilma was into organic stuff, and uh, I wasn't really. But uh, I, I gradually came around to that way of thinking because uh, what we were doing, yeah, it it wasn't just working out well, and, and the premiums looked like they were pretty good. Uh, and my father was keen. Uh, well, my, sorry, my sister and my mother were also very keen, uh, but my father was quite keen because he saw our costs going up and up, you know, as we'd intensified following the sort of the, the, the norm at that time, and um, and he wasn't very comfortable with all that. So yeah, he was he was quite keen to be honest. And was the conversion process quite smooth, or did you come across any hiccups? There wasn't a lot of technical help in those days. For you know, at a professional level, uh, there was a lot of people doing it and, and dabbling in it, but it wasn't you know they they weren't really, really professional um, farmers on, on the whole. Um, so there wasn't a lot of guidance as to what to do. 
we had to kind of feel our own way through it. Um, through it, it was uh, we made a lot of mistakes, and we, you know, the biggest problem is the mindset change because we had to stop thinking about what we would use instead of the the chems that we had been using. You know, <laughs> what fertilizers can we use instead of the normal fertilizers? What organic pesticides are available? And all that sort of stuff. And it, and it was trying to get your head around the fact that you know it's about farming in a way that you don't need that stuff uh which is totally different and it takes a long time to get ahead around that so it, it wasn't easy and um we actually had a uh, one of the uh, sac uh, consultants down we were about seven eight years in and he said only in two years out of your uh, seven eight years have you actually made more profit by being organic uh two wow. out of seven so it wasn't going terribly well. The reason we stuck with it was because it gave us a, a huge opportunity in the ice cream market. So there was more people at that time looking for organic food and or was it this the supermarkets and things that you were selling to that were demanding it more? When we started in organic, we definitely were looking at the organic ice cream market and there was only one other organic ice cream maker in the UK and they were even smaller than we were. So we, we just saw this huge opportunity and we launched the organic ice cream as we put, as quickly as we possibly could. And just so easy to open accounts in those days. Uh, you could, and I'm, I'm talking primarily about the independent market, but even uh, the multiples were approaching us at the Highland Show or something like that saying, yes, we were, we were really would like you to make our own label. So it was just taking us, you know, I always say there's never been this kind of quantum leap. Um, it's just always been a steady increase. But that's that at that time, it just felt like it was going to go exponential on us. However, at the same time, along came foot and mouth. You may not remember foot and mouth, but the, the worst areas or area of Scotland to be hit was Dumfries and Galloway. So we were right in the middle of utter panic and it was almost warlike conditions and yeah. staff were being lay, laid off, our customers. You know, tourism had just ended for the, the season in the region and it was just about survival, both of the sheep and of our businesses. So that we lost a good year over that and by the time we were able to resurface from it, there was lots of other organic ice cream makers in the business. Yeah, okay. So, but yeah, you learn these things. Opportunities arise and you really need to be in a position to grab them when they do. Um, but as we've seen with COVID, things come left, uh, left field and uh, you really have no idea what's going to hit you around the corner. And then so you got through all the sort of trauma and the difficult times of foot and mouth and then towards the late 2000s, I gather from your book that you then decided to make another change and consider different ways of, of doing dairy and you call yourselves the ethical dairy and you decided to explore the cow with calf method of dairying. Why was this change important to you? I had very little experience of, of farming before I met David and one of the things that confused me, maybe more so than horrified me, but certainly confused me was why the dairy calves were separated from their mothers and the beef calves weren't. And bear in mind, I didn't even know that there were beef calves and dairy calves. That was my the limit of my knowledge. And I just really didn't quite understand why it was necessary. 
and you know I got involved if, if David was doing the milking I would get involved and feed the calves why did we just not let the mother feed the calf instead of us lugging buckets of milk about the place and then you just accept it you know you just accept that this is how it is and get on and do as good a job as you possibly can to look after these calves but when we started Cremagala way we also started to do farm tours and just about every day we were open we would have some members of the public going around the farm the most commonly asked question we had is why are these little calves in this shed and not with their mothers and we would have to try and explain that and we had a way of explaining it it sometimes satisfied the person that had asked the question but often it didn't those of us at I'll say the sharp end with the public were much more aware of what the public thought was acceptable in farming than those that were actually doing the farming. So it took us a long time to convince David that he should look at letting the cow rear its own calf. But now that he has, and now that we've tried it and now that he's successful, he is certainly the biggest advocate for it. But I'll let David tell his version of this. I'll step back a little bit before that I mean, and certainly was aware of the pressure being applied from Wilma and, and others mainly women I, I, I suppose you became aware of it more uh, rather than just sort of walking away from the fact that a cow might be unhappy with her situation when you took the cow away but there was something there was another thing that was a driver uh, I, I kind of work at a strategy level and, and then up to construction level so at the strategy level uh, being niche marketers as we are we'd also tried developing a, a new brand of ice cream because the new kid in the block was fair trade so fair trade organic ice cream was the sort of the new wonder products that were, were hitting the market in the sort of mid to 2000s so we thought okay uh, we're, we're getting out competed we're getting out competed on the organic alone uh, through the conventional guys the big uh, players but what we can do is uh, come up with an organic fair trade product because uh, getting fair trade ingredients is really really difficult and we spent quite a bit of time we talked talk to all our customers and they all thought this was a great idea and we uh, developed uh, flavors new flavors we developed some fantastic packaging uh, got all the packaging in uh, through um, 2007 had all things set up ready to launch spring of 2008 just as the wheels were falling off the economy and the banks were going bust. And um, we went to our customers and they said, no chance, no chance. Do not bring this product here. Uh, everybody's going in the opposite direction. So we hardly sold any fair trade organic ice cream at all. Uh, and the lesson from that was if we're going to invest, and we, we, we really invested about £60,000 in this project, um, and for it to go nowhere was really very painful. We thought, okay, if we're going to do something, it's got to be something where, A, the uh, the big boys just can't walk in and uh, dominate it for overnight, and B, it's not uh, subject to, people are not buying your product because it's cheapest in the market. So if it's a, a pound cheaper, or, or a pence cheaper or whatever um, the, the deciding factor is, uh, they're not going to walk away from you. They're, they're going to be buying your product for a, a, another reason. Uh, and the reason would be the story. 
and the story for us was, for me anyway, uh, at that time was, okay, if we could make this cow-calf thing work, it's not going to be easy, I don't know if it works at all. But the opportunity, the market is definitely there and people would be buying your product, uh, not because it's cheap, but because of the way you produced it. That would be the, the driver. That was a big a big thing for me and the big thing for Wilma. So it was, yeah, it was the cow and calf thing and, and the customers and their customers being upset by taking calves away from their mothers. So so there's all these sort of things all they're all building together to say, right, we need to give this a chance and we'll give it a go. And so we went across to the Netherlands where some small scale dairies were doing cow with calf dairying. Um, Wilma and I went over in, in January and a wedding anniversary, I think, 10th of wedding anniversary, if I remember. <laughs> um, you know, what more could you offer um, than a visit to a farm on a wedding anniversary? And and we came away thinking, okay, uh, it's not perfect, but um, it's doable. Sent the guys over in the summer. Uh, everybody came back and said, yeah, we can do this. So that was um, that was the start of it. And at the time, we were undergoing a, a review of the whole farm buildings because the buildings were becoming unfit for purpose. Uh, you know, they were old and leaky and uh, inadequate for modern farming and, uh, and the requirements of the environmental uh, people. We thought, okay, do we get out of dairy or do we go on? And uh, again, the decision was we'll go on and invest a significant amount of money in a new build dairy that was uh, fit for modern purposes, but also uh, would allow us to incorporate cow with calf dairy. That's where we started. So what were your initial experiences of starting the, the cow with calf dairy system? The experience was uh, we, we, everything set up, we thought. We, we, we designed the building, got the building designed. It was a kind of, again, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> One of these were, the architect said, well, I've designed dairy buildings and I've designed beef buildings, so we'll just sort of get a compromise thing here. And that's how we we started. It became fairly obvious fairly quickly that it wasn't really adequate. Initially, it started quite well. Uh, the cows were calving outside in, uh, in October, late October. This was the first group. And we, we had uh, 47 cows to calve. And the first dozen or so calved outside everything was going good and then we came inside and, and it all seemed to change when we came inside the cows started getting really stressed and more were calving this was this was back in 2012 back end of 2012 the cows were getting really stressed and they started not coming into the parlor we thought what's wrong with them you know what, what is the problem here the, and to the point where they they were you know reluctant to leave the calves the, they they wouldn't let the milk down they were Getting mastitis, you know, we really didn't get mentioned that we were mastitis. They were getting mastitis because they wouldn't let them up down. They were, so the whole thing was just becoming, and we were, of course, we didn't know what we were doing. So we were, we were changing the the management insofar as uh, we might be milking them twice a day or once a day. We might take the calves off, trying different things. And every time you change something, of course, the cows just upset them more because they hate change. They just love um, a routine. Also, because we had didn't have the place set up well, uh, trying to get the calves, when we did try to get the calves separated, so at least we got some milk that overnight, we would separate them overnight, uh, trying to get the calves off, the calves were running circles around us because they thought it was coming, um, they worked it out a lot quicker than we did, uh, and the mothers, you know, the mothers were funny because we tried to lock the mothers into the, the feed barrier at night to give them a bit of feed along the feed barrier, lock them in, 
and of course some cows wouldn't wouldn't go in and they would stand at the what they could, we've got a calf creep area with a low bar that doesn't let the cows in but the can you get the calves in there and they would stand and block that it was, it was i mean looking back it was hilarious but uh, at the time it was uh, everyone was absolutely stressed with no milk in the bulk tank and everything was seemed to be going downhill so after five months of that we said that's it we gave it our best shot we're pulling a plug on it doesn't work um the industry was right Every, we were wrong um but we gave it a good go and uh, we can walk away with a hold our heads high <laughs> so to speak so then how did you get to the position of trying it again where did you find the energy to go for it again yeah well i suppose uh, it was it was one of these ones where time is going on if we're going to get a another a chance at this is probably the last chance the window of opportunity is closing but before that even there was a professor david Logue at uh, glasgow vet school who um, heard about what we we're doing for my daughter who's um, doing vet and he was interested in the uh, the effect of animal welfare on productivity and and health so he sent down a student to um, look at the data that we collected because it was all on computer, but we'd, we just walked away and <laughs> stuck in a drawer, didn't want to know. Um, anyway, he dug, dug the stuff out, put it together a report, which basically said, well, you know, it might work. <laughs> so, okay. so the challenge was back on again. Uh, we could, I can just sort of say uh, we'd have given it our best shot until we'd really given it our best shot. So... I thought, right, this is it. The last time we'll have another go. So to- October 2016, we said, that's it. We're, we're... And, and in the meantime, we'd, we'd, we'd brought in a lot of things, uh, changes to the internal layout of the of the buildings so that we could better manage the calves and cows, um, break them up into smaller groups, provide more feeding areas, and, and so on. So, so it was, the, the infrastructure was so much better. We were also putting in tracks uh, out to the fields where... We could contain the calves and stop them running all over the place. So, yeah, big investment, but that and that side of it worked well. But what had happened was things had changed. And initially, we went into a brand new building. There was no no bugs in the building. The second time, the cows had been in for four years, and uh, things had changed. Uh, the pathogens had built up. Uh, we, because we were leaving the calves in this, this environment, where normally they would have been taken away into a cleaner environment, they were being challenged quite um, seriously by different pathogens. And one of the pathogens was cryptosporidium. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows about cryptosporidium. It's got cows and calves. Crypto. We've never really seen much in the way of crypto before. You maybe get the odd one, but uh, this this was serious. I mean, it's cows and calves outside. Everything's fine. That's when we brought them in. That's when it started, and it started with uh, usually it was a heifer calf, a heifer had calved, and uh, her colostrum wasn't giving the, a sufficient protection. Then you get the calf starting with crypto, started scouring, you contaminate the environment, and it was just, and it just went through everything. We lost a lot of calves, we lost about a third of the calves ultimately, um, oh, out gosh. of that group, autumn calving group. It was horrendous, and, and again, this was a time when we, uh, you know, we, we spent most of our time. Um, running around rehydrating calves and trying to keep them alive but it was pretty grim and um yeah it was horrible so but we'd, we'd been working with the vets the vets are fascinated by what we're doing they're really good 
and um, they they come along done swabbing, found the crypto, uh, said right, you're going to get your cluster management sorted out. So we got the ma cluster management uh, much better. We bought some equipment from Denmark, which uh, you you can defrost the colostrum at, uh, and sashes of colostrum at, um, and, and again, it's good quality colostrum. It's not just any old colostrum. It's the older cows, good rich colostrum, frozen um, as quickly as possible, and then defrosted uh, at uh, 40 degrees in a water water bath. And that really worked, really worked well. Um, so you uh, brought the cows in uh, to calve, got the calve going, got it suckling and um and then went off and, and got your defrosted uh, colostrum and tubed the calf and uh, so we did that there was about a handful five or six of them just in the last group of calves and once we got through christmas and new year and i was like right that's it we're not going we're not doing the spring calves this is it but we were looking back and thinking wait a minute these five or six calves these last ones that we got the colostrum into the proper thing and, and the hygiene was another thing cleaning the boxes properly and, and steam cleaning they were all fine they were they were all fine every one of them was was thriving so we thought okay this could just be a coincidence could be just be a, nothing to do with the colostrum uh, do we go on and do the spring calving so uh, it was that really that uh, was another sort of hurdle point where you think um yeah get out of this this is a nightmare or do we continue so we continued and the spring calvers were Okay, it wasn't it wasn't perfect, but it was dramatically better, dramatically. We didn't lose any cows, so that was a, a real uh, step forward. And 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 each stage of this of this program, you know, we're, we're now in our seventh year of this, um, and we think we've got it cracked, hopefully. But uh, it's a it's really it's finding the problems and then trying to work out with the vets, uh, particularly the microbial problems, what what's going on, how best we we, we deal with it. You launched the, the brand name, The Ethical Dairy, and I believe that was late 2018. And Wilma, that was kind of your idea to get the, the cow with calf system going. How, and, and obviously you've had a lot of challenges along the way that you've just spoken about there, David. Wilma, can you tell me what it feels like to now be in a position where you're successfully doing what you set out to do all those years ago? Um, I think David and I are both pretty poor at celebrating success. We're always <laughs> looking at to see what the next thing is we should be doing. But yes, it does give you satisfaction that uh, the thing that you could see um, as being a, a fantastic opportunity is now a reality and that the general public love it. So it is it is very satisfying. But of course, there's always that next thing that you want to do or something you want to tweak or whatever. You're never standing still. And Wilma, in the book, A Dairy Story, you, you write about having cancer throughout your life and your more recent diagnosis of stage four lung cancer. That news must have been devastating. How has it changed your outlook on life and facing these challenges in the business as well as your personal life? Well, yeah, I mean, as you said, I, I've had cancer uh, since a relatively young age and I really thought that I had had cancer and that was it and it wasn't it wasn't going to happen again so to be told um and it would be not uh, about a year and a half ago that i had stage four lung cancer when i'd never ever smoked um and had just had just never foresaw anything like that and you know how do i look at life now and i think the honest answer to that is i still haven't accepted that i've got cancer you know, I, and, and obviously you can't 
plan things assuming that you're going to be okay. You've got to plan things assuming that you're not going to be okay. So you have got to protect the business and the people around you to as much as you can. I don't wake up every morning thinking, oh, woe is me, I've got cancer. I think I wake up every morning thinking, what have I got to do today? Oh, I've got this to do and that to do and the next thing to do. And as long as I'm busy, I really don't think about it that often. It's only when you're sat there opposite the oncologist and they tell you how things are going or not going that um, you begin to think things through again. You know, as, as long as I can, I will keep going. I think that positive mindset is just so in- inspiring. And I, I read a, a section where you wrote that you're, you realise that you're not indispensable. And I think for a lot of people, that's quite a hard thing to, for, for most farm businesses, that might not be the case where there's only one or two people working in the business. You've obviously got a great team supporting you in, in the different aspects, you know, the, the physical farm work and, and all the stuff that you're doing, producing food and your relation to the public and things. Is there a lesson, do you think, there for other people for thinking about succession planning? <laughs> um, David and I have, long before this ever happened, we looked at succession planning. And I'm not going to go into all the family details, but even, as I say, the best laid, laid plans of mice and men going after glee, you know, just because you think, oh, well, this is what will happen. And even though people think, yes, yes, I'm, I'll be involved in that. And yes, I'll do that. Things happen in people's lives. And it, it is really quite difficult to pass on a family business now unless that person has been in the business like more or less from the time they leave school or leave university. Because once you see the outside world, not many people want to come back to a family farm. Mm-hmm. But no, they, they're kind of assuming that you are indispensable is just so... What word am I going to use? I was going to say so wrong, and I was going to say so conceited. I think you you just get tied up, and to a certain extent, you enjoy it. You enjoy doing the work so much that you want to carry on doing it, and you don't want to think of life without work. And to a certain extent, I'm still at that stage. I don't want to think of life without work because I do enjoy it. And I said quite recently, maybe we are, are you know, our, our business can be very chaotic. Maybe we're so chaotic because I like solving problems. And maybe if we had someone, <laughs> someone in charge who was much more organized and much more working to uh, a protocol and a routine, maybe the business would be in a better shape. Uh, so you've got to kind of start to look, yes, at your uh, what your strengths are, but also what your weaknesses are and how things could actually be better without you. And that's that gets to be quite a challenge to think like that. Absolutely. I think most people would struggle to, to envisage their farm business without them. It's not easy to do, but... I think that message of succession planning and not necessarily assuming the worst, but thinking, well, what if I wasn't here? Who would do this job and how would things go is important. Both of you, you know, just drawing to a close now, you obviously care deeply about finding an ethical way of doing things and a sustainable way of producing food. I like this quote in your book that your goal is, and this is a direct quote, to create a circular regenerative food production system that has a positive environmental impact, delivers nutritious food, provides good quality jobs and works to the highest possible standards for animal welfare. Do you believe that we really can feed the world, you know, with such a growing population with 
those standards. Is the industrial food system are they actually it's actually feeding the world? I don't believe it is. Uh, whereas we're we're producing beef, uh, milk, um, our, our cows are. Uh, the the uh, suckling is stimulating milk production, so we're getting a twenty five percent increase in uh, in milk production over what we would have expected if we hadn't been suckling, and um, the in gross terms. And uh, we're also because the the calves are growing so much quicker, the, we're getting them away faster into the into the beef market or uh, breeding market, breeding. Uh, releases forage has allowed us to increase our stock numbers by 25 to 30 percent. So we can carry 25 to 30 percent more cows without any fertilizer. We're not adding anything more. Not buying very little feed. We're, you know, the cows are getting a, a straight sound pellet and no minerals and vitamins. It's allowed us to increase the cow numbers by 25 percent and the yield by 25 percent through the suckling. Yeah, sure, the calves drinking 35 to 40 percent of of that milk, gross milk, but we're actually increasing the, the overall milk production uh, pool by something like uh, 50%. So net, we are producing more milk and we're producing 25% more cattle. So, okay, uh, we're getting away at lighter weights, but still that's producing. So in terms of efficiency, in terms of food production, in terms of environmental impact, uh, we, because we're not putting on fertilizers, we're not using pesticides, uh, we're production without antibiotic. We're we're not using grains. We're not using cereals or soya. We know that all these in inputs have quite serious uh, environmental and social um, consequences globally. So that's very much the argument. Uh, you know. Also, uh, we're talking about um, harnessing the, the the power of nature. We, we have our contractor for the first time. Usually, we're we have we lift our own silage, but uh, the contractor came in and lifted the silage last year because we were um, our chopper broke down, and he couldn't believe how much stuff we had. But I won't call it grass because it, it's a mixture of grasses and and herbs, clovers and all that. He couldn't believe how much stuff we had. We uh, we calculated out because he did a fancy machine for weighing all the stuff uh, that we were cropping twenty tons of silage per hectare at 30% dry matter, which I would have been delighted with 25 years ago with fertilizers, and pesticides um, and ryegrass. Uh, not only that, but our cows and sheep, we don't actually feed any minerals and vitamins anymore because there's so much nutrient in these biodiverse pastures that we don't need it. Our lime requirements are now down from um, an average of 75 tons a year to uh, less than 20 tons a year because we're not acidifying the soil. So, you know, all this stuff, and, and that's all, it's all, so we're now moving more and more towards this, yeah, natural nature-based system, which is we're buying in less and less stuff uh, and we're getting closer and closer to being um, a closed loop. So, sorry to go on at length, but it is quite important. Um, it is. It's fundamental to the the model that we're producing. We're we're net zero. You know, we're we're, we're sequestering more carbon in our soils, and we're emitting as methane. Um, and if ever they ever accept a GWP star, which is um, another way of measuring methane emissions, um, we will be very positive. So, Wilma, what are your your thoughts about the regenerative system? 
I think the one thing that David missed out there was to talk about equitable food system throughout the, the world um, because we in the, in the West and the developed countries on the whole eat far too much and expect far too much and then we have people starving in other countries and then we have obesity in mainly the developing, developed worlds because we're eating the wrong things and there isn't enough nutrition in what we're eating. Uh, so there has, has to be for the sake of the health of the population and for the health service, if you're going to focus in in the UK, we've got to change people's diets. We've got to find a way to get people off of the processed food and especially off of sugar so that we are all eating a much healthier diet and less of it. You know, so yeah. I mean, I'm I'm overweight. David's not overweight. I've been overweight most of my life, not at the obese level, but I'm certainly overweight. And and we do need to get to a stage where we accept a truly healthier diet for ourselves, and um, rather than just assuming that uh, as countries like India and China um, become wealthier, that they will all eat like us because that really isn't going to be good for their health and it is no way to feed the world. No, absolutely. And, and as that links in nicely with what David was saying about the health of the planet, we need like a, a whole perspective change on, on the way that, that farming is, is carried out. Um, in your book, A Dairy Story, I like the quote where you said, people always say the Finlays are I different. <laughs> How does that make you feel? I suppose... Looking at us, we are different um, in a way because we kind of do different things. My father was the same. Um, he was always challenging the established view. I got him into all sorts of trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> I continue the, the family um, trait. I, I believe my grandfather was a bit like that as well, uh, <laughs> writing to the newspaper. And <laughs> so I haven't written to newspapers, but I do put stuff up online. So I guess, which is a, can be a bit provocative, I guess. And um, and that's really what, uh, what uh, yeah, our position in, in life, sadly. But, um, you know, get used to it. Yes, the Finleys are very different. And when you come in from the outside and look in on the family, I mean, there's David and, and five sisters. So, yes, they are all different and they all have their own ways of doing things. And there's now something like 18 grandchildren uh, of David's father. And they will all do their own things as well. And I think that's part of the issue with succession these days is people want to do their own thing. They don't want to just follow on in a family business and do what their parents did. Um, so, yes, there will be Finlay's and descendants of Finlay's all over that are challenging the norm, and but they'll be doing their own thing rather than just following what went on before them. I think that brings us to a nice close to the topic today. I just want to say a big thank you for giving us your time today, and I find that really fascinating uh, listening to your story about how you started the Ethical Dairy. Thank you very much. Okay, right, thank You're you. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Agriculture. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find our contact details in the show notes. If you're interested in more livestock podcasts, you might enjoy listening to our sister show, Stop Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find a link with information on where to purchase David and Wilma's book in the show notes. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast.
audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.